Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. I'm joined today with Dr. David DeVray for a conversation about the formation and enforcement of canon law in late antiquity. Dr. DeVray is a medieval historian. He's Emeritus Professor of History, University College London, based in the UK. He's the author of many publications over his career, including a couple books as examples. Papal Jurisprudence, circa 400, which was published by Cambridge University Press and Papacy, Monarchy, and Marriage, 860 to 1600, which was also published by Cambridge University Press. Welcome to the call, David. Thank you for having me. Okay, so we are talking about the formation and enforce, enforcement of canon law in late antiquity. Let's start with a contextual and broad type question. What is canon law? Uh, canon law is ecclesiastical law or church law and it's found in the Catholic Church, the Greek Orthodox Church, um, the Anglican Church, um, and to some extent in the continental Protestant churches, uh, where on the whole uh, it's um, controlled by the state, by the prince. Uh, so it's ecclesiastical law, yeah. And it doesn't deal with everything, but it deals with things to do with the clergy, things to do with the ritual, things to do with the sacraments. Uh, it deals with marriage, one of the most important uh, aspects of canon law. Uh, and then there are contested areas where canon law and different kinds of secular law compete for control. Okay. What's known about the etymology of the term canon? Ah, um, canon, I think, come, means a yardstick. Oh, interesting. And I think canons are simply like decrees. So it's so a decree is like a yardstick for behavior, I guess. The word canon actually has, has multiple senses. When you're teaching medieval history, it's one of the words you dread because it means so many different things. Um, <laughs> it can mean a kind of monk. Canons are a kind of monk. That's, mm. I guess, because they follow a rule, which is like a yardstick. Um, so you always have to find yourself explaining what a canon is and what a regular canon is and what a secular canon is. But canon law is ecclesiastical law, church law, religious law. Religious law in a Christian context. Interesting. Uh, it's kind of like um, the Christian counterpart to Sharia law in Islam. Okay. Thought to be uh, formed as a term in Latin originally? Uh, it's a Greek word, canon. Okay. I'm glad I asked then. <laughs> okay. Um, and but when... It's, it's, incorpor it's incorporated into Latin too. Yes. Yeah. yeah. As like a, a cognate. Um, okay. So... When we talk, again, contextually, when we're talking about late antiquity, uh, what, what period for the most part are we focusing on? Probably from the, the 4th century to the 7th century, roughly speaking. I mean, all periods are arbitrary. They're all just made up by historians. And late antiquity was a term invented 
I think, or at least popularized by Peter Brown, a great historian, who tried to look for the, as it were, the common ground between the end of the Roman Empire and the early Middle Ages, and to see this in many respects, that long period should be seen as a whole rather than split at some end of antiquity, beginning of the early Middle Ages point. Okay, great. Um, so when it comes to canon law in a Christian context, um, when is it thought to have started and to what and to what degree, if you could describe those kind of that the, the early nascent uh, period of canon law? Um, I would say that it probably should be dated to the um, uh, the Council of Nicaea, which I think is 325, which in addition to trying to settle the definition of the place of Jesus in the Trinity, also had a series of canons, um, which were rules governing um, the clergy, um, baptism, uh, practical things. You could see it as going back earlier. I mean, if you uh, look at the Acts of the Apostles in the New Testament, um, the new Christian community is immediately faced with the problem of how much of the Jewish law it has to obey. Do you have to do the whole deal, all the Jewish law? You know, Can you eat pork? Do you have to be circumcised? And the early Christian community passes, according to the Acts of the Apostles, um, a set of rules about how much of that you have to obey. So you could regard that as a sort of antecedent of canon law, but probably in practice, um, you would see these canons of the Council of Nicaea as starting a new phase. And the first papal canon law is a letter in 385 of a Pope Siricius, spelled S-I-R-I-C-I-U-S, um, to Tarragona, uh, which had sent a series of questions and uh, Pope Siricius uh, sent a series of answers in what is generally called the first decretal. So canon law from that point tended to consist of canons from councils and decretals from bishops of Rome, from popes. And presumably Bishop Siricius, is it Siricius? Did I pronounce that correctly? Siricius, yeah. Uh, S-I-R-I-C-I-U-S, Siricius. Siricius. I'll try to say that correctly yeah, in the episode. It, you said it just fine. Great. Uh, Siricius, presumably he was in Rome at that point? He was in Rome, yes. Okay. And a point of clarification, who was the person that you said wrote to him initially? And where was that person? It, it was a guy, uh, this is another um, fancy name, Himerius, H-I-M-E-R-I-U-S. Um, H-I-M-E-R-I-U-S. E-R-I-U-S. So it was Bishop Himerius of Tarragona wrote with a series of questions to um, Pope Siricius and the first decretal is his answer. Actually, the original letter was to Siricius's predecessor, Damasus, but he died, so Siricius picked up the baton and answered them. Himerius wrote to him initially. Himerius, exactly, yeah. If you were to describe where, and Himerius was a bishop as well? Exactly. Okay. Bishop of Tarragona. Yeah. Tarragona. If you were to describe where Tarragona was or is on a on a map, how would you describe that? 
Um, it's Mediterranean, so fits within your framework, and it's on the um, the east coast of sorry the 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 east the the east coast of Spain. Okay, understood. So if one of the earliest cited examples of canon law was in Nicaea. Yep. And then there's this more formalized correspondence between modern yep. day Spain and Rome. How did how did the orbit move from Nicaea to Rome? Okay. Um, so <coughs> um, just to give a bit of back history, um, and for those of your listeners who heard Rosamund McKitterick's talk, mm. you'll see that this links up with that. In the third century, um, so before the empire becomes Christian, already at Rome, you begin to find a strong sense that the Pope is the successor of St. Peter. That, and that therefore he has authority over other churches. That sense is not shared necessarily by other churches, but it's already there. And questions are already beginning to arise such as if somebody is baptized by a heretic do you need to baptize them again practical questions with theological implications and the bishop of rome is claiming on his authority as successor of saint peter to be able to give authoritative answers which others do not necessarily accept but Already at that time, you have a series of strong bishops in cities like Carthage and Alexandria, who are the leaders of their communities. And as leaders of their communities, they're expected to give answers to questions like that, which are very practical questions. If somebody's been baptized by a heretic, do they need to go through baptism again? That's a big deal. Baptism is a huge ritual, not you know, not, it's not like a little a group of people around the baptismal font today. Mm. And there's a whole preparation for it. So do they have to do it? At that point, things are rather looking as so though they might move in the direction that they moved a lot later, namely towards the Bishop of Rome as the person who gives authoritative answers. And the reason for that is that there is no other way to get all these different bishops to agree. They have a strong sense that, you know, they argue, we're all successors of St. Peter, is one argument. All the bishops are. But supposing one bishop says, you need to rebaptize heretics, and another says, no, you don't need to, you can accept their baptism. It's a question that comes up again and again. So at that point, things are moving in the direction, probably, of the kind of papal authority that you find later. However, at that point, there's another persecution and then there's the conversion of Constantine, and then the emperor, um, with a Christian emperor, he realizes that people are looking for answers for questions like this. And he says, I'm going to call a general council and it will give these answers. Now that is, so Constantine actually summons the first general council of the Christian church. So it's actually a secular ruler who summons the first general council. He doesn't say he's in charge of it, but it wouldn't have happened without him practical things. You've got bishops all over this vast Mediterranean area, the area you cover. How are they going to get to one place? Well, he says, come to Nicaea and you can use the imperial postal service. You can travel in imperial carriages. So um, at that point, 
you begin to find a place where you can get answers, which is a general council. And the general council gives answers to theological questions, but also to these canon law questions, like, do you need to rebaptize heretics? Then, as the century goes on, this is the fourth century we're in now, mm -hmm. the emperors in the West kind of lose control. This is coming up to, you know, the, the famous fall of the Roman Empire in the West. And there is no way that, and the empire has been divided into two. I still consider the unit, but there's a Western emperor and an Eastern emperor. The Western mm -hmm. emperor is on the back foot. He's struggling. The succession of Western emperors, they're defeated by the Goths. They're struggling to control a situation which is slipping out of their hands. And there is no question of their being able to call councils to provide canon law. At that point, people start writing to the Bishop of Rome again. Um, because by this time, they want answers. There are all sorts of questions they want answers to. Um, and there is no council that's going to give them those answers. So um, they try the Bishop of Rome, who, who always replies, the phrase used is the apostolic theme. The, the word Pope isn't, isn't um, uh, used in these documents. Um, and Bishop of Rome, not so much either. The, 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 the Pope's right as the apostolic see. So in a, fen in a sense, the, there is already a set of problems that are arising. They begin to be solved by ecclesiastical law provided by councils. Then emperors cease to be able to arrange councils and there's a vacuum for Popes who incidentally, and I'll stop in a second, when they write back, they write back in just the same way that Roman emperors had written back when people put secular legal questions to them. They write it, they, they, they are imitating the style of responses of Roman emperors, except that the content is very different. Yeah, it's a great answer, David, and I'm glad you expanded on it. So you have a bishop in Rome, at this time, you have Constantine, who's more based in Nicaea, more in the... No, no Constantine, Nicaea was just a place he picked for this council. If you look at Nicaea, it's, it's, it's in the sort of in the middle of the Mediterranean Empire. So it was just a place to hold a council, which was good for people to get to from all over the empire. Constantine ruled the whole lot and was based in Rome. But then he split the empire and, and created Constantinople. His idea was the empire is too big to rule. Who can rule this whole vast Mediterranean empire, including up to Britain? Um, so he said, we've got to divide it in half and we'll have a Western empire and an Eastern empire, but they are still part of the same empire and they will help each other um, and see themselves as being joint rulers. But they, it's like a division of labor. It's as if you had two chief executives of a big company um, dividing up the, the, the business between them. Um, so Nicaea was just a place where a council was held. So and councils were held in other places too. So a point of clarification, a point of clarification, and I may have the, the term wrong in my mind. Did Constantinople, uh, Const, uh, Constantine not spend a lot of his time ruling from Nicaea? Or was he no. born there? Was there not some, some connection with Nicaea to no, Constantine? It was, it was a convenient place to hold a council okay. where, where, people from, where people could get to. Okay, so he was in. So you're saying, it, during this time when he started the council, for the most part, he was ruling from from Rome at this point in time. Not yeah, but okay. he was, you know, a Roman Empire. You had to be everywhere. You're ruling this vast area. You don't you don't stay on top simply by staying in one place the whole time. 
Um, but Rome was the capital, yeah. And then he founded, but he founded the second capital, Constantinople. Yes. Um, and from then on, um, there were two capitals. Okay. You mentioned also when you expanded on uh, things there, uh, Carthage and Alexandria, bishops yeah. in that area. Did they practice corresponding with a Roman bishop? And if so, uh, did they uh, follow what was um, prescribed? Um, yes and no. Um, I mean, Carthage is a good point. Um, they they often consulted the papacy, but their view was they were consulting a sort of senior equal authority, and the papacy tended to reply as the boss. So there was an asymmetry between the two sides of the correspondence. Um, and in the case of Carthage, already in the third century, you have both. You have, uh, actually, Carthage plays a really important part because Cyprian of Carthage, who was a bishop of Carthage, very powerful, highly educated Roman um, uh, uh, man who converted to Christianity, um, he actually suggested to the papacy the idea of the this key passage in the Gospel of Matthew, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. It's the one that Rosamund Kitterick talked about in her podcast. Mm -hmm. Oddly enough, the bishops of Rome had not used that before. Cyprian of Carthage suggests it. Then when the Pope starts giving judgments that Cyprian doesn't agree with, Cyprian says, no, 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 that text applies to all the bishops. Every bishop is the successor of St. Peter. Um, but the popes say they take the ball and run with it. And they are saying this is the basis of our authority because we are the successors of St. Peter. Um, uh, so Carthage had a tradition of independence, Alexandria also, but, they, but it depends a bit what they want too. I mean, sometimes they consult Rome as an authority, especially if, uh, so let's say if Alexandria is in a dispute with Constantinople and Alexandria is losing, they will appeal to Rome. So people, even in the eastern half of the empire, which is generally more independent, tend to, from time to time, appeal to Rome if they if they are on the losing side. And if they're on the winning side, they say, Rome, you know, what's that to us? But in Rome itself, and this is quite important, there is this very strong self-confidence in the legitimacy of their authority, going way back. Okay, and that... Uh, dovetails into the question um, I'm going to ask. Do you believe that eventually canon law, Christian canon law, became to orbit around Rome versus somewhere else in this period because of scripture and uh, references to uh, Apostle Peter or and or um, but if it's a if it's an and, please expand on it. Um, and or do you think it's because Constantine, uh, Constantine was was based in Rome, and and the Roman Empire was based in Rome as a capital? Okay, so um, the a lot of the prestige of the bishops of Rome comes from the fact that they're in Rome, but certainly from the third century they wish to emphasize that their authority does not derive from the fact that it was the capital, but that it derives from the succession from St. Peter. 
Whereas, say in Constantinople, they say, Rome is great, you know, you, you were the capital of the Western Empire, pity there's no Western Empire anymore, but anyway, mm. you know, it was good while it lasted. Now, Constantinople is the capital of the Greek Empire, of the Eastern Empire, um, and for that reason, we're as good as you. So there's again this asymmetry in perceptions. And mm. Constantinople says the key thing is to be a capital and, you know, tough luck, you're not even really a capital anymore. Um, uh, but you still have a sort of primacy of honor. Whereas in Rome, they say the capital, the fact that Rome is the capital is not the reason, it's the succession from St. Peter that legitimates our authority. Then coming to canon law, um, there is a canon law in the Eastern Church, and mm -hmm. the papacy has no part in it to speak of. And it's a canon law made by councils. And it's much more like the religious laws of, say, Islam or Judaism, in the sense that it's a body of texts, which um, include actually texts by private religious writers as well as councils. And it's interpreted in a flexible way to meet, you know, particular situations. Um, and it tends not to worry too much about internal consistency. Um, religious laws often, they, um, they um, are kind of fluid and their application to concrete cases can vary quite a lot from case to case and they're interpreted by experts. Now, in some ways, the canon law that begins to develop in the West, which is a mixture of councils and papal decretals, has a lot in common with modern secular laws in that there is a real concern for rational consistency and for a build-up of increasingly full coverage of possible cases over time. Um, so there's the difference between Western canon law in Latin and the canon law in the Greek church, and there's also a canon law in the Armenian church, which is not part of Greek orthodoxy, for example. Um, in the West, it's councils and papal decretals. Um, and the papal decretals claim that their authority derives from succession to St. Peter, not, not anything to do with it being a capital city. And of course, by, by the time you get to the end of the fifth century, it's not a capital city anymore anyway, because there isn't a Western Empire anymore. So... Oftentimes, the, the the schism between East and West gets referenced in the 11th century yeah. in contemporary uh, times. If canon law was starting much earlier than that in Constantinople from from the from the East Orthodoxy, would you say that it was around that time that the schism was starting to occur? No, not at all. Um, firstly, um, Constantinople itself does not claim to legislate in the way that the Bishop of Rome was. Mm -hmm. It's more councils, all sorts of councils that are that are legislating. Um, and I don't actually agree that the schism started even in the 11th century. I would say the real date of the schism is 1204, when a crusade was hijacked by the Venetians and sacked Constantinople and set up a Latin Empire. And that's the real break between East and West. Okay. Um, that said, there is a, a, a tendency to diverge that you see before. 
um, and there's a difference of approach. Um, the real difference of approach, I think, is that um, Greek, so Greek orthodoxy really depends on councils and an emperor, um, because put it like this: both of these systems need some way of resolving uncertainties, uncertainties about doctrine and uncertainties about law. And in the East, that way is um, the emperor working with the the leading bishops, the patriarch of Constantinople and other bishops. Um, and in the West, it's um, also local councils and the papacy. Um, now, you can see already there's a difference there. And there's a difference in mentality also in that the West is kind of more attuned to developing doctrine and law, whereas the East has a sort of, if it ain't broke, don't mend it philosophy. So you can see that they're becoming quite rather different in their character. You can see how the schism, you know, was being prepared. But there are appeals to Rome, actually, from the Eastern Church long after the end of the Roman Empire. As I say, when, when there was a losing party in the East, they might appeal to Rome as somebody outside, as a kind of last throw. Um, so the idea that the Eastern canon law is a kind of mirror image of Western canon law, I think, would be mistaken, um, because there isn't really an equivalent of the papacy as a legislator in the East. Um, it's a series of councils and... Um, and much more, it's much more like a private body of texts, actually. Okay. In this period, how many dioceses or bishops, approximately, would have been corresponding with the Bishop of Rome in any reasonable period of time? To give to, in an integer kind of number, are we talking dozens? Are we talking potentially more than 100? Um, I would say, yeah, I don't think anyone's actually <coughs> compiled a list, but um, if you've got all <coughs> the recipients, um, maybe a couple of, I mean, what we have, what we go on are surviving responses from the papacy, and those would be to perhaps 20 or 30 places. If you took the whole gamut of papal correspondence, um, in a given century, um, it would be more. Um, but you're probably talking about dozens rather than hundreds. Okay. Did any of the... Uh, mostly mostly bishops. Mostly with bishops. Okay. The, the, the districts and the churches not in Rome, the diocese, were they ever paying tributes or paying some kind of money to Rome, to the Roman church? Not in, not in the period we're talking about, no. Um, uh, it wasn't a financial system. There's a, um, a rather nutty theory of um, the economic origins of the papacy um, done by economists, okay. um, which, um, which, as far as I know, no ancient historian or medievalist has even reviewed seriously. But, um, but no, it's not a matter of money, though the, 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 the papacy is very rich, but that's from donations, which must, in fact, come from lay people, lay, lay, great powerful lay landowners, very rich um, Roman landowners who gave lots of estates to the papacy because the the papacy has lots of estates in Sicily, for example. And as the Roman Empire in the West collapses, 
then it comes back and then it collapses again it comes back to Justinian in the 6th century then it collapses again the Rome, the role that the Roman Emperor had had of feeding the people of Rome being the source of social security in Rome is taken over by the popes and they're able to do this because of their great wealth of estates in southern Italy and Sicily even some estates in, in modern France um, so they have a lot of wealth but it's not from taxing no it's not from taxing other churches okay it's 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 donations there's huge amounts huge amounts of wealth and land is given to the church in late antiquity unbelievable amounts and this is lay people giving their land to the church and above all to the papacy but to the church in general and then when monasteries begin to take off huge amounts given to monasteries massive amounts all these pious laymen giving land away and are there examples of emperors giving donations as well to the church? Well, don't forget, as I say, the empire in the West collapses in the uh, in the course of the 5th century. But Constantine gave huge amounts to Rome, yeah. No, Constantine gave a lots and lots of land and wealth to Rome, to the papacy, yeah. Okay, can, can you walk us through an example, in the best that you could using words, on the process of this? So you have a bishop somewhere in, let's say, the Mediterranean basin who is... Toulouse, for example. Yeah, is writing to Rome. Yeah. There's a very practical issue that they're grappling with in that area. They're requesting a response. So can you can you kind of, in a linear fashion, uh, you know, in the best way that you can describe it, so the Bishop of Rome receives the, the document, they, they write yeah. back. What happens next in terms of the document going back, but then also what happens with that document from a storage archival perspective for reuse in future cases? That's that's a brilliant question. Uh, absolutely spot on question. So let's say um, the Bishop of um, Toulouse writes to the Pope and he writes with a kind of shopping list of questions, including things like, um, you know, do, do priests have to be celibate? Um, why um, do more guys um, uh, have their wives tried for adultery um, uh, uh, and uh, than the other way around? Um, uh, what is what what book should be counted as part of the scripture? Um, can you give communion on the deathbed to the dying? A whole series of quite practical questions. Mm-hmm. Um, the Pope, who is Innocent the First, then replies. Firstly, he says, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, okay, um, I'll do my best to answer your questions. And then he gives a series of answers, which are all in one letter. So it's like point by point by point. Um, at one point, this is the celibacy thing. He says, you know, I'm surprised that you did not, uh, have not seen. There may be some people who haven't seen the decree that my predecessor, Sericius, sent to Himerius of Tarragona, mm-hmm. in which case I guess they can't be blamed if they haven't been living celibacy, celibately, uh, but from now on they must. I should explain, by the way, that celibacy of the clergy in this period meant celibacy within marriage. If you, you There were lots of stages of promotion in the clergy, and at a certain stage, deacon, you either, if you were a subdeacon, you had a choice. Either you became a deacon and then a priest, or you said, that's enough, I'll stay where I am. If you wanted to become a deacon, then you had to give up sex with your wife, but you stayed with your wife. So you, you're dealing with a married clergy for whom celibacy means stopping sex at a certain point in your career if you want to continue it. Okay. Um, and Innocent said, I'm surprised. You'd be surprised if people haven't 
um, already, you know, learnt from this previous letter to a, a bishop in Spain. But if they haven't, mm -hmm. then okay, we won't blame them. But from now on, they will know. Okay, so what happens then is, um, it seems that what happens is, uh, firstly, the bishops keep it in their own archives. So bishops had their own archives. Mm -hmm. um, and we know from a couple of the papal letters of this period, he says, pass this on to other people. So the popes write to back to these bishops, and then they say, and pass it on to other bishops. Interesting. Um, so the, the popes have no mechanism for writing to all the bishops, such as they might have in a later period. But they do want their decisions and their answers to be passed on. And apparently they were, because when we begin to get canon law collections, which is actual you know, books of canon law, they do not seem to have been compiled from the papal archives on the whole. They're compiled probably from Episcopal archives where by private individuals um, who, are, who think there's a use for a book of a canon law, a handbook of canon law, and they go to Episcopal archives and pick out the relevant papal responses from the Episcopal archives. So there seems to have been a lost world of Episcopal archives which had quite a lot of these papal decretals in. Um, and then once the decretals get into these compilations of canon law, then they take on a life of their own and they're copied and spread throughout the West. So that your question really absolutely goes to the heart of early medieval canon law. These decretal collections include conciliar decisions too, I should say. Okay, there was no web back then or emails with uh, CC. <laughs> no, 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 that's right. But, um, but one thing that uh, historians need to remember is that just as um, before the web there were efficient ways of communication, so too before print there were efficient ways of communication and there are ways of communicating things um, without our modern technology. And, um, and therefore from about the fifth century you've got collections of uh, canon law which is a mixture of papal decretals and conciliar canons which is increasingly widely copied in the West. Okay. So to work our way into some closing questions, um, how often was canon law overturned, so previous canon law overturned by current bishops of Rome? Oh, okay. Um, can I, actually, I want to track back to something, I, Go for a it. crucial yep. thing I didn't say before. Yep. In this period, the popes had no way of enforcing canon law. If, if you say the clergy shall be celibate and the clergy in Tarragona are not, there's nothing the pope can do about it nothing. Um, there is no enforcement mechanism. On the other hand, don't forget, most of these responses are requested by bishops. And bishops did have enforcement mechanisms over their clergy and over ritual. So also to some extent over marriage in, or the laity insofar as they were involved in rituals. And bishops could control their clergy because the clergy depended for their legitimation on the bishop. Um, okay. And also, you don't have, by and large, a Christianity with lots of you know priests in outlying country parishes. Most of the clergy are concentrated in towns around the bishop, and they depend on the bishop. So if the bishop gives a series of questions to the pope and the pope answers, and then 
the bishop wanted those answers and the bishop can enforce them on the clergy. So the Pope can't enforce them, but the bishop who requested them can enforce them. Did Pope some, uh, yes, I think it's a principle of canon law is that it's not like a theological decision. It's not meant to be immutable. So for example, one of the questions put to um, Innocent the First was, can you give um, communion to somebody who's lived a really bad life um, uh, uh, and who wants to receive communion as well as confession or penance on their deathbed? And Innocent says, yes, you can. In the old days, he said, you could not. And that was because this was in the persecutions and you really wanted to give people a strong incentive to stand firm against persecution. So you could say to them, if you give in to the persecution and sacrifice to the pagan gods, you won't be able to receive communion on your deathbed. You can get a penance, but you won't receive communion. But he says, nowadays we live in happier times, there aren't any persecutions, so we can change the law. So it's a strong feature of canon law is that in principle, it's human law that can be changed. The catch is, it's human law, what you know, legal scholars call positive law, but often there are principles embodied in it. So something like baptism, um, you know, can you, can you accept, or let's say somebody who has been ordained by a heretic? There's a double question there. Is it, you know, can they continue to be a priest if they've come back to orthodoxy? That could be just a matter of whether it's appropriate or it could be a matter of whether it's even valid. So often it's human law, but often there are principles embodied in it. And the border between the absolute principle of the human law bit is often difficult to decide. But in principle, canon law can be changed. Yeah. Okay. It sounds like um, they were trying to keep it relevant to some extent with the times. In a, in a way. Yeah, yeah. They, they, exactly. It's very, very well put. A closing question. Um, why do you think Christian canon law had so much endurance from this point in time? Because any religious system, actually almost any system, has two great problems, complexity and uncertainty. The, uns the complexity comes from the fact that any system includes lots of subsystems um, and they're not compatible with each other. So think of something like um, um, computer systems. Uh, even a great firm like Microsoft produces systems and they're often incompatible with each other. The graduate, um, my own university, the graduate application system was incompatible with the, with the basic system of the college. And that goes for religious systems too. There are lots of different systems which are evolving and you get problems um, of compatibility. So you need someone as a sort of help desk to resolve those problems. Mm -hmm. And then there are questions of uncertainty, like is the baptism um, by a heretic valid or not? And every religious system has them. So there is a demand for some sort of help desk or problem resolving mechanism. And the papacy provided that. Other religious systems try to meet that need in different ways. Okay. This has been a great chat, a uh, great way to start my day. David, thank you for coming on the show. <laughs> yeah, and ruffle your dog's head from me. <laughs> okay, everybody. Ruffle your dog from me. Yeah, so yeah, my dog, uh, my dog is at my feet. Um, no one could see him in the episode, but I did bend down once and put him in his uh, little little bed, so he's sleeping. We're yeah. going to go for a walk soon. Uh, this has been great, David. Uh, it was a pleasure to talk to you. Doctor. And you asked terrific questions. 
Thank you, David. Thank you. And you provided awesome answers. You have a tremendous amount of knowledge on this topic. So uh, loved having you on the show. Again, everybody, Dr. Davray's a uh, couple books that I referenced at the start of the episode, Papal Jurisprudence, Circa 400, uh, which was published by Cambridge University Press. They were both published by Cambridge University Press. The other one is Papacy, Monarchy, and Marriage, 860 to 1600. I'll drop links to both the books in the show notes on the Ithacabound.com's associated subpage to this episode. David and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.